We're going to be back in Luke today, Luke chapter 5. It's been, been a few weeks since we've been together in Luke, at Easter thrown in, and it was away last weekend. Good to be back with you and back into our study in the book of Luke. Luke 5, we're going to be looking in just a moment at verse 27 down through the end of the chapter. This past week, I was reading through some information that had been sitting on my desk for a little while, new new work that had come out a year or so ago, doing some research regarding the status of American culture, the status of Christianity in America. And the research project was done by the Barna Research Group. You're probably familiar with them. They developed a continuum, a chart, that they called the Christian Faith Church Adoption Continuum. And they'll just give you a taste of what the scale looked like. The far left of the scale represented those who would be categorized as post-Christian. You probably have heard the term um, postmodern, which was popular a few years ago, where postmodernism basically argued that there is no absolute truth, and uh, the only the only truth is that there is there is no absolute, and postmoderns believe that absolutely. Okay, which isn't contradiction of terms, but it is. Well, we have now, statistics say, people argue that we have moved past postmodernism into what is now being called post-Christian, or you could call it simply secularism. And so they started researching people, thinking about what people believe. The far left of this continuum was characterized by the ultimate far left, the absolute statement of a post-Christian or secular person was antagonism toward truth, antagonism toward the church. If you move in a notch, it was rejection of the church, and you move in another notch, it was resistance to the church. And then there was people in the messy middle. But then there was the far right group, and they used words all the way over to the right as advocates for the church. Then there was those that was engaged in the church, and then those that expressed interest in the church. And those in the messy middle were characterized as being doubtful, indifferent, or curious, moving left to right. Now, don't get caught up in all of that. Other than to take the two extreme statements, there were those that had outright antagonism toward the church, and then on this side, you had those that were advocates of the church. 38%, 38 38% of our nation's population, according to the study, would be qualified or called highly post-Christian, or highly secular. As you know, my dissertation I wrote on generational shifts and changes in the church, and 48%, 48% of millennials, those that are born 2002, 1983 to 2002, the millennials, 48% are considered post-Christian. They are considered to be secular. Now, let's take all those numbers, maybe you're not a stats person, put them over there for a minute, and just make this very simple summary statement. Culture has changed. It used to be, I was in Connecticut this past week um, helping a church, they have a new pastor coming in, and the old pastor's retiring, so they're working through this, they asked me to come and speak for them this past weekend, and the pastor's been there for 30-some years, he planted the church in Connecticut, New England, he had planted the church, he'd been there for a long time, he's 62 years old. And he was sitting on the front pew, and I asked him, I said, Pastor, when you started the church in Hotford, Connecticut, that's how you say it up there, 
Hartford, Connecticut. What was the impression of people when you said, I'm the pastor of Truth Baptist Church? His response? Oh, pastor, very positive. How about today? He hung his head and he said, yeah, not so much. There used to be a time, right, when culture had at least some recognition that the Bible was true. It was God's word. It was highly esteemed. Pastors were esteemed as leaders in the community. Now we're more viewed with suspicion. But if you say that this is the word of God and the unchanging truth for all people of all time, particularly to people who were born between 1983 and 2002, the response you get today is, what? No, it's not. It's just a book. And so sometimes we come at evangelism with trying to reach people with, with the gospel, reach people for Christ, with the assumption that they believe that the Bible is at some level God's word. Well, if we live truly in a ultimately, increasingly rather, post-Christian secular society, we have to start at a different place. Now, let's not start here. Let's not start with the problem is with culture. That's where it's comfortable to start. It's easy to start there. Let's start here. Let's ask them very pointed questions this morning about the church. And I'm not targeting Grace Baptist Church. I I am talking about the church in the broad sense of the word. The church today, the one entrusted with the gospel, the one who has been called to take the gospel message to an ever-changing culture. Let's ask some very pointed questions. You ready? Number one, does our culture know that we love them and care for them? Do they know that? Does our culture see the church, secondly, as a place of compassion and hope? Number three, does our culture only know us by what we are against? Or do they see us as a place where grace and restoration are found? Number four, does our culture see the church as a place where Jesus Christ is worshipped and obeyed? Or as a place of religious zealots who are void of authentic worship? Those are hard questions, aren't they? You've answered them, I'm sure, in your heart. But as we read through the Gospel of Luke, and specifically we come to a very interesting passage this morning in Luke, I want you to notice that Jesus is going to engage his culture. They sense that Jesus cared about them in a personal way as he spent intimate time with them. Jesus not only preached to them, he engaged them, He showed compassion to them that there was no question whether or not Jesus Christ cared about his culture. There was clear demonstration of that. Oh, they didn't like his message any more than they will like ours necessarily. But they couldn't question his compassion. They couldn't question whether or not he cared for them personally. Look at at Luke Luke 5, verse 27. And we're going to notice that this text this morning, 27 down through the end of the chapter, is ripe with controversy. And as Jesus' ministry goes along, there's going to be more controversy. 
But this controversy is really going to provide us with the privilege and the opportunity to see purpose. What was the purpose of Christ's ministry? What is the purpose of our ministry? Well, let's read this first section. Look at verse 27. And after these things, he went forth and he saw a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, follow me. And he left all, rose up, and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his own house. And there was a great company of publicans and of others that sat down with them. But the scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? And Jesus answering said unto them, That they that, they that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. And I came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Now, this first controversy, I want you to notice that controversy over Jesus' ministry reveals to us the purpose of forgiveness and restoration of the lost. Jesus came, stirs up this controversy, not that he was stirring it necessarily on purpose, other than the fact that he was going to proclaim the truth that his father had sent him to proclaim. And the more he proclaimed that truth, the more the religious leaders get agitated and upset. And now we see this exchange that begins, first of all, with a man named Levi. In verse 27, and after these things, he went forth, he sees a publican. His name was Levi, sitting at the place of customs. And Jesus says to him, follow me. Now, who was Levi? Let's stop and ask that question. First of all, the name Levi does not appear in the list of the 12 disciples, but we find this in Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. It seems that Levi, Matthew are, are names that were given to the same person, much like Simon Peter. Simon went by Two different names, or at times he's called Simon, at times he's called Peter. He was known by these two names. It seems that Levi here is a reference to Matthew. Okay, Same person, becomes a disciple of Christ, follows him. Levi has a significant problem. He is a tax collector. Tax day was just a couple of days ago, in case you missed it. I was in the post office on the 15th of April, not mailing my taxes, mailing something else, but it was pretty busy. Hopefully you didn't miss it. Levi was not a chief tax collector like Zacchaeus. Levi, rather, was a lower-ranking tax collector who would have reported to a chief tax collector, somebody like Zacchaeus, but he was a man who was stationed at a tax booth. His job was to sit and collect taxes as people traveled from city to city. His job was to collect their taxes. So they're walking by. They're going from one city to the next. He had the tremendous job of sitting at this tax booth, collecting taxes, and taking what was, at least in their minds, due to the government. The word indicates that he was a person that was given to this uh, profession. Tax collectors were considered by the Jews, by the way, to be ritually unclean. They are ritually unclean. You don't interact with them. You don't talk with them. You certainly don't engage them. Often, they were referred to as gangsters and traitors. They were associated with those 
who were often extortioners. They were often dishonest. They were characterized as being thieves, as extortioners, gangsters, and traitors. That's Levi. But notice this little word. Jesus saw a publican. He sees this guy. He sees this tax collector. Now, in English, any language, really, we can use the same word to mean a variety of things, right? Well, what does he mean by saw? I could say that I, I saw that day, April 15th, I saw Bob Thomas at the post office. I saw him. I can use the word to be very superficial. But this Greek word, it means to view attentively, to contemplate, to learn something by looking, to perceive with his eyes. This is not a passing glance. This is not a, I saw him at the post office. This is, I looked and I considered, I evaluated, and I saw Levi. And what did Jesus see? He saw a publican, a tax collector. This tax collector that the majority of society, especially the religious elite, would say, socially unclean, don't go near him, don't interact with him, have no engagement with him. Oh, by the way, he's outside of God's grace. Don't interact with him. Jesus saw him, perceived him, understood him, contemplated who he was, and understood that while Levi was a reject of society, that Jesus had bigger plans for him. Notice the two simple words. Levi, tax collector, outcast, morally, or excuse me, socially, unclean, deemed outside of the grace of God. You follow me. You come with me. What? You're going to build an all-star team of people who are going to be given this opportunity to go out and to reach their culture and to preach the gospel. You don't want him. Remember, for some of us, it may bring back nightmares. You remember gym class when you picked teams? And maybe you were the one that was picked first. Maybe you were the one that were picked last. Well, Matthew, if you're going to go by social expectations, Matthew's not on the list. You don't want Levi on your team. He's going to bring baggage. I mean, he's a tax collector. He's a, he's a gangster. He's a traitor. But Jesus calls him. And notice Levi's response. And it says in verse 28, And he left all, rose up, and followed Jesus, Levi, sacrificially leaves all that he has known behind to follow Christ. Now, let's think about this for a minute. We've already seen his call of Peter, right? And when Peter was called to follow Jesus, and he walked away from his ability as a fisherman. He didn't walk away from his ability, but he walked away from being a fisherman. Peter had the option, really, to return back to his career because there was no social association with him Walking away from that, if he didn't work out, he could go back and fish. Not Levi. You walk away from this position, you walk away from this governmental position, if Levi were to ever return, the safe assumption would be he would not be welcomed with open arms. 
But it says he leaves. Levi begins to follow Jesus without fully understanding where this path would leave him, lead him. While Jesus' call to deny ourselves and follow him may seem difficult to us at times, it's really a call of grace. In calling Levi and calling us to die to ourselves and to crucify ourselves is really saving us from eternal death. There is a rich, rewarding, satisfying life that is found in Christ. And as Levi hears these words, follow me, Levi understands immediately the only answer here is to say, yes, I will follow. The words of Isaiah came to mind, Isaiah 55 too. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread or your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. He goes on in verse six and he says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And that's what Levi does. Now notice Levi's reaction because that's all fine and good But the tension really comes in the next scene, if you will. Notice verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his own house, and there was a great company of publicans and others that sat down with them. Levi takes this call to ministry seriously. In fact, he takes his call to ministry to the place that he opens up his home to his friends and he brings them all into this party, if you will. And they are there. They are coming together to celebrate. They're coming together in this social place to, to uh, fellowship one with another. One writer said this, celebration is associated with repentance. And Levi celebrates the grace that comes in Jesus's call. Jesus extends salvation to those who are normally excluded by the social elites, Levi being one. We also have to understand that the meals during this course, during this time, they were more public. The Pharisees, as we'll see in a moment, they are able to see what is taking place, and they're able to watch this, and they're able to be, they're able to see who's there, who's present, and what they are doing. We also have to understand that meals for them. It meant close social interaction. It meant fellowship. But notice who the honored guest is. The honored guest is Jesus himself. Such an association for Jesus to come in the midst, in the home of this tax collector. And oh, by the way, the problem is really with the guest list. The problem isn't necessarily that Levi did this for Jesus. The problem becomes who is present at this event? Because the ones who are there are publicans. There's more sinners. There's people that are present at this event that the religious elite are certainly going to be offended by. Such associations by the Pharisees and the scribes would be considered to be unrighteous. This would, consider, this would make Jesus to be considered unclean. He should not have such associations with these people. Levi, however, goes to great strengths, great lengths rather, to connect Jesus to many who normally would have never had this kind of, re, of activity and, rea- and action with a person of his stature. Now notice the questioning in verse 30. But the scribes and Pharisees 
murmured against the disciples. By the way, don't read past the end of verse 29 where it says, he sat down with them. But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against the disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? The question by the Pharisees is basically this. Why are you associating with these people? Not only association, but why are you showing close fellowship through eating with them and drinking with them? This, is based on the, this question is based on the assumption that eating with others symbolized religious compatibility. What are you doing? Notice the word murmur, by the way. It means to grumble, to say something in a low tone. It was used to complain about something. The, the grumbling of the Pharisees underscores the fact that they would never share such a meal with the outcasts that Jesus was choosing to associate with. The grumbling by the Pharisees may also indicate that they were sensing a loss of influence. The Pharisees would have considered those on this guest list to be socially off-limits, unclean, crooks, sinners. They were to be avoided. Notice that Jesus did this purposefully. He had considered Levi. He had seen him, evaluated him, called him. Jesus is here on purpose. The fact that the Pharisees, by the way, went to his disciples rather than to him directly indicates possibly there was some intimidation. They didn't bother to go to Christ directly. They get to Jesus through his disciples. They don't actually go to him. But notice the reply. Jesus says, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. Verse 32, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Notice Jesus' answer. First of all, he says, those that are healthy don't need a physician. It's those who are ill, those who are sick. Jesus makes this application then in verse 32, and he says, I didn't come to call the righteous to repentance, I came to call those who are sinners. The proper role of a a physician is to tend to those who are sick. The proper role of a shepherd is to rescue lost sheep, care for the injured, and strengthen the weak. Eating with this group of sinners pictures that Jesus is coming to those who were sick, those who were in need, those who needed the gospel, and he's coming to them in an intimate way to interact with them for the purpose of showing them hope. The hope of restoration. And notice, Jesus says that the healthy, they don't need this. The healthy are those who are righteous. And by the way, he's not saying to the Pharisees that you are righteous. He's simply saying you think you are. You believe that you are. You believe that based on your religious activities that you are, in fact, righteous. And you see no need for salvation. You see absolutely no need for repentance. Basically, Jesus says, I can't help you. I have come to those who recognize that they need help. The point is not that the Pharisees are justified, but that they are not open to their need of a physician because they believe themselves to be healthy already. Now, this may be unfair. This may be a categorization, a generalization that is maybe not always true. 
But my observation of people tells me that there's a category of mankind called males, men, that our wives readily say something like this to us. You know, you ought to get a doctor to check that out. And our reaction is normally, oh, I'm fine. I'm good. I don't need to see a doctor. I used, when I was in healthcare, you have an ER person come in and, you know, they're in bad shape. Bad shape. And you're triaging them and you're like, well, how long have you been having these symptoms? Oh, six months. Seven months, a year. Whatever. Passed out five times before I came. You, you get the picture. Doctor can't help you. If in your arrogance and pride you believe, well, I'm healthy, I don't need to see a doctor, I'm not going to go, the best physicians in the world can't help you. And if you spiritually see yourself, as the Pharisees did, as somebody who is already righteous, I'm already good with God, I'm already morally righteous or whatever, and I believe that I don't need a Savior, I need no help in salvation, I need no help spiritually because I have it all figured out and I'm okay because I'm a particular religion or I'm a particular denomination or I give money to a church or I'm a good person, I give to the poor. Whatever your reasoning is, Jesus can't help you. He came, he said, to those who recognize that they are sick. They are sick spiritually and they understand that they can't earn their way to heaven or buy themselves to heaven. They can't. Now imagine, go back to the hospital illustration, imagine a triage nurse sitting out in the emergency department and triage nurse basically as people come in off the street, they're evaluated for whether or not they need care and what level of care do they need, how quickly do they need to be seen, that sort of thing. Imagine a triage, triage nurse coming and seeing a person who's in bad shape, chest pain, you know, there's numbness in their left, classic symptoms of a heart attack. And the nurse looks at him and says, you know, I don't think you really need to be seen. I'm just going to send you on. We're a little busy tonight anyway. And quite frankly, you would take up a lot of our time. You know, you're kind of in bad shape. We don't really have time for that. So why don't you just go home and rest? Just, just go home. You'll feel better. We would be, that, that person would be in huge trouble, wouldn't they? What about as we as a church triage people. We evaluate them by externals, things that make us uncomfortable, things we don't like. Oh, we would never say it, but do we triage people and begin to think, well, you know, their life is a little complicated, and they come in here, they might start messing with our traditions, or they might start you know, messing with what we do, and we don't want to be uncomfortable. We don't want to have to invest in the lives of people. We want to be professional Christians and do church the way we've always done church. We don't want people that don't look like us. We don't want people that don't wear the clothes we wear. We don't want this. We don't want that. And we have become a social club. Jesus says, I have come for those who need the gospel. And if we triage people and we come to the place where we don't want sinners and publicans in here, then close the doors. Shut them. Because we've then lost our purpose. Jesus allowed this level of 
of controversy to come up and the publicans and Pharisees are mad and they're angry, my response is, so what? Be mad. Be angry. There's hope in Christ. And it's our job to proclaim it to those who need it, not to the self-righteous who believe I'm good. Even if you're saved today and you're here and you're going to heaven, you did nothing to earn it. You do nothing to keep it. It is the gift of God that you have salvation. And who are we to ever become self-righteous and to slam the door in the face of a culture who needs the gospel? Oh, you know, Jesus... What are you doing sitting there with those sinners? They have tattoos and piercings and they look scary and they don't wear a tie and they... Exactly! Yes! Yes! That's the people who need it. I've been away too long. I get excited when I come home. Spiritual restoration and healing can only be accomplished through the acknowledgement of illness. You realize that? Spiritual restoration and healing can only be accomplished where one acknowledges their illness. The tax collectors and sinners were willing to come to the physician, the great physician, Jesus, for healing because they saw their need. The Pharisees, on the other hand, saw no need for a physician, and they were eternally damned because of it. The first step for you, maybe you're here and right now you're a little confused. Like, what are you talking about? Talking about the fact that Jesus Christ came to die on a cross to save mankind from their sin. And if a person hardens their heart and they reject the gospel, they reject the Holy Spirit working in their life, and they say no to the gospel and they refuse to believe, there is no hope for you. And I don't mean that to be mean or unkind, just speaking the truth in love. But Jesus says that those who recognize that I am a sinner who has no hope of salvation apart from God's justifying work through the blood of Christ, and I realize that through repentance I can put my faith in Jesus and in him alone and be forgiven of my sin, there is eternal hope for you. Because the Bible says that whosoever shall believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. There is eternal salvation in those who believe. The problem is, when you talk to folks increasingly in our culture, when you say you need to be saved, I've had people say this, from what? Saved from what? What do you mean saved? What do you mean born again? It means that you would be eternally saved from your sin that you must acknowledge before a holy and righteous God. And the only way to achieve salvation is through the free gift of eternal life offered only through Christ. So spiritual restoration and healing can only be accomplished where there is acknowledgement of illness. But notice the second application of this, the willingness to rest in God and have him enter into one's life is the essence of repentance. It is God's grace that allows us to experience the grief and regret of our sin. It is God's grace that offers forgiveness of our sins to allow us to have a life of joy and a life of abundance. So, first of all, we see this controversy associated that it reveals the purpose of forgiveness and restoration. But as we finish this morning, notice a second one. 
controversy over the practices of Jesus' disciples reveals the purpose of living under the grace of the new covenant. Now, for sake of time, let's read through these last few verses again and just highlight um, the general principles. There's some, they're, they're very much connected, but notice. And they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often, make prayers, and likewise the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? They basically say this. Why is it that the disciples of John, the disciples of Pharisees, they fast? They don't eat meals like this. And they certainly would never do it in the presence of the kind of people that you're associating with. Why would you do that? They're, making, they're trying to vindicate themselves. Notice. And he says to them, Can you make the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? In other words, he says, I, I've been in ministry long enough to do lots of weddings, have my own wedding 20, almost 20 and a half years ago. Imagine, I've never had a couple say this, ever. Ever. You know, the whole reception thing, we're going to have people come in and there's going to be nothing to drink, nothing to eat. We're going to declare a time of fasting and mourning. That's what we're going to do. And the dad is saying, yes! This is cheap. Yes, honey, this is a great idea. Can you imagine? There's the bride, there's the groom, dressed, she's dressed beautifully, he's dressed handsome, and they come in, they share their vows, and then you go to this somber, morning, fasting time, and everybody would be like, that's weird. That's what Jesus says. The bridegroom's here, that's him. Why, why would you be fasting? Why would you be mourning when the hope of eternal life and God's inauguration of his future kingdom is right here in the Messiah? This is a time to celebrate. This is a time not for mourning and fasting. This is a time to say, praise God, salvation has come and he is offering the free gift of salvation to those who will believe. This is a time to rejoice. Hello? And as a church, we've become, um, it's almost like a monk. We've become reflective and somber and mourning. Jesus, like, this may come as a newsflash, Jesus is not dead anymore. There is hope in Christ, and he says, why in the world would I come into this world? And Levi and these sinners and these publicans, they understand who I am, and they are rejoicing, and it's the right response. But notice, he says, but there's coming a time he says in verse 35, the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them and then they shall fast in those days. There's coming a time to mourn. Jesus is going to die. He's not negating the fact that fasting is outdated. He's not negating the fact that there's not opportunity to mourn. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the occasion right here, right now, is celebration. Sometimes as Christians, we get afraid to get happy. Verse 36, and he said unto them, it gets better. <laughs> he tells them now a parable. No man putteth a piece of new garment upon an old, otherwise then both the new maketh a rent, and the piece that was taken thereof and the new agreeth not with the old. He uses another illustration. He says, take two garments, one is new, one is old, and you're going to take and patch the old one, and you cut a hole in the new one, so now the new one is ruined because it has a hole in it, and you patch it with, you patch the old one with this new piece of fabric, and they don't match. 
They don't mix. So now they're both ruined. You have ruined the old. You have ruined the new. They have both been destroyed by this activity. The picture here is that the mixture of the old and the new is destructive. It can't be done. The point of the parable was the ways of Jesus and traditions of the Pharisees' religious system cannot be mixed without damaging the new entity. While there is a level of continuity to what Jesus is offering with the old, what he offers is a new and distinct dispensation. Jesus brings discontinuity in the midst of continuity, and he is saying, this is now the new age. This is the new covenant. It is now coming. It's not to disregard all, all of what happened before, to say it was invalid for its time, but now is the new age, the new covenant in Christ. This is being inaugurated. He gives one last picture, and he says, and no man, this is emphatic in Greek. In other words, nobody would ever think about this, the putting new wine into old bottles. Else the new wine will burst the bottles and be spilled, and the bottles shall perish. But new wine must be put in new bottles, and both are preserved. He uses an illustration. He says that no one takes new wine and puts it in old wineskins, which were made out of skin from animals. Over time, they would get... They would get dry, they would be cracked, and as you put new wine into it, the fermentation process would begin, it would expand, and the, the, the skin would break, and the wine would be spilled, the skin was broken and destroyed, the wine was, broke, was now destroyed because it spilled out. He says, nobody does that, nobody. You put new wine in new skins, you have to have new containers, it doesn't mean that all the expressions of faith have been done away with. What he's saying is there's a new framework. And then verse 39, he ends it. He says, no man also having drunk old wine straightway desires new, for he says the old is better. Now, here's where the rubber meets the road. This is a rebuke. The problem with you Pharisees, uh, not you, Pharisees, that's them. Okay, I pointed at the wrong moment. The problem with you Pharisees is... You just want the old. And you're stuck in tradition, and you're stuck in what you've been doing. And you don't want the inauguration of the new kingdom, of the new covenant to come, because you want it your way. You want it to be the way it was. You don't want to change. You don't want new wine, because you want to remain in your traditions. This is a rebuke to those who would cling to the past to the point that they would miss the present realization of God's kingdom. The reason Jesus' listeners wanted the old age, they wanted the old age fermented wine, was because it tasted better to them. The established traditions of Judaism tasted better because they were familiar with it. They were comfortable with it. They liked it. They didn't want to change. They wanted to put away this new thing that Jesus was preaching. They didn't want fellowship with sinners. They didn't want fellowship with with, uh, with uh, tax collectors. They didn't want that. They wanted things to stay the way that they were. Now here's an application, three of them for us as we close. If we simply have become comfortable in our church attendance, we have become like the Pharisees and church has become a club rather than a place where broken sinners are mended. Have we become professional Christians who are content to hunker down 
in our increasingly secular society, hunker down, build the walls higher, protect ourselves, insulate ourselves, build the moat, put in the alligators, close the gate, and shut off the culture, and we're just going to bide our time until Jesus comes. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly, get me out of this mess. Or might it be that Jesus has a different plan? Might it be part of the culture's problem is we've done just that? Might it be that part of the, the culture's problem is the fact that we have spent too much time proclaiming obnoxiously at times how sinful they are? Sinful. Sin. Yeah. And God said to you, and you, and you, and me, and everybody else, you're a follower of me. Get up out of your pew and go tell them. And not only tell them, show them. They may not agree with everything you say, and they won't. But heaven forbid that any unsaved person would ever say about Grace Baptist Church that we are unkind, unloving, and want nobody to be a part of our church ministry. Heaven forbid that anybody would ever think that. Now, they may think that, as someone said in Sunday school this morning, the minute you stand up for truth, that people think you hate them. I get that. I'm not talking about that. Talking about what is our spirit? How do we interact with those who are unsaved? Adjusting to the culture in which we live does not necessitate compromising our doctrine. We're not talking about that. But understand that Jesus, if he is, in fact, our model of ministry, Jesus intimately and compassionately engaged his culture with a counterculture message. Even in this passage, this was not popular with the religious people. Not at all. They didn't want to hear this. But let's make it pointed to us. The church must be intimately and compassionately engaging, should say, our culture with the counterculture message of the gospel, the church must intimately and compassionately engage, is right, our culture with the counterculture message of the gospel. The church must be a place where the sick and the wounded are brought before the great physician so they can be healed from their sin. That's what we're called to do. We're called to show them the love and mercy and compassion of the gospel, not to condone their sin, not to encourage them to live in their sin, but so they can be rescued from it. So that they, like Levi, can celebrate the fact that they have been redeemed. It's our job, it's our purpose, it's our calling. It's our job to take this lost world before the great physician so that he can heal them of their sin.